0: Chapter Eighteen of the Star Chamber, an Historical Romance, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume One, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter Eighteen How the Promise Was Cancelled. It was a large garden, once fairly laid out and planted, but now sadly neglected. The broad terrace walk was overgrown with weeds. The stone steps and the carved balusters were broken in places and covered with moss. The once smooth lawn was unconscious of the scythe. The parterres had lost their quaint devices, and the knots of flowers, trefoil, cinquefoil, diamond, and crossbow were no longer distinguishable in their original shapes. The labyrinths of the maze were inextricably tangled, and the long green alleys wanted clearing out. But all this neglect passed unnoticed by Jocelyn, so completely was he engrossed by the fair creature at his side. Even the noise of the May games, which, temporarily interrupted by Hugh Calvary, had recommenced with greater vigor than ever. The ringing of the church bells, the shouts of the crowd, and the sounds of the merry minstrelsy scarcely reached his ear. For the first time he experienced those delicious sensations which newborn love excites within the breast and the enchantment operated upon him so rapidly and so strongly that he was overpowered by its spell almost before aware of it. It seemed that he had never really lived till this moment, never at least comprehended the bliss afforded by existence in the companionship of a being able to awaken the transports he now experienced. A new world seemed suddenly open to him, full of love, hope, sunshine, of which he and Aveline were the sole inhabitants. Hitherto his life had been devoid of any great emotion. The one feeling latterly pervading it had been a sense of deep wrong, coupled with the thirst of vengeance. No tenderer influence had softened his almost rugged nature, and his breast continued arid as the desert. Now the rock had been stricken, and the living waters gushed forth abundantly. Not that in Norfolk, and even in the remote part of the county where his life had been passed, female beauty was rare. Nowhere, indeed, is the flower of loveliness more thickly sown than in that favored part of our isle. But all such young damsels as he had beheld had failed to move him, and if any shaft had been aimed at his breast it had fallen wide of the mark. Jocelyn Munchensy was not one of those highly susceptible natures, quick to receive an impression, quicker to lose it. Neither would he have been readily caught by the lure spread for youth by the designing of the sex. Imbued with something of the antique spirit of chivalry, which yet, though but slightly, influenced the age in which he lived, he was ready and able to pay fervent homage to his mistress's sovereign beauty, supposing he had one, and maintain its supremacy against all questioners, but utterly incapable of worshipping at any meaner shrine. Heart whole, therefore, when he encountered the Puritan's daughter, he felt that in her he had found an object he had long sought, to whom he could devote himself heart and soul, a maiden whose beauty was without peer, and whose mental qualities corresponded with her personal attractions. Nor was it a delusion under which he labored. Avalon Calvary was all his imagination painted her. Purity of heart, gentleness of disposition, intellectual endowments, were as clearly revealed by her speaking countenance as the innermost depths of a fountain are by the pellucid medium through which they are viewed. Hers was a virgin heart, which, like his own, had received no previous impression, Love for her father alone had swayed her, though all strong demonstrations of filial affection had been checked by that father's habitually stern manner. Brought up by a female relative in Cheshire, who had taken charge of her on her mother's death, which had occurred during her infancy, she had known little of her father till late years, when she had come to reside with him, and, though devout by nature, she could ill reconcile herself to the gloomy notions of religion he entertained, or to the ascetic mode of life he practiced." With no desire to share in the pomps and vanities of life, she could not be persuaded that cheerfulness was incompatible with righteousness, nor could all the railings she heard against them make her hate those who differed from her in religious opinions. Still, she made no complaint. Entirely obedient to her father's will, she accommodated herself, as far as she could, to the rule of life prescribed by him. Aware of his pertinacity of opinion, she seldom or ever argued a point with him, even if she thought right might be on her side, holding it better to maintain peace by submission than to hazard wrath by disputation. The discussion on the May games was an exception to her ordinary conduct and formed one of the few instances in which she had ventured to assert her own opinion in opposition to that of her father. Of late, indeed, she had felt great uneasiness about him. Much changed, he seemed occupied by some dark, dread thought, which partially revealed itself in wrathful exclamations and muttered menaces. He seemed to believe himself chosen by heaven as an instrument of vengeance against oppression, and her fears were excited lest he might commit some terrible act under this fatal impression. She was the more confirmed in the idea from the eagerness with which he had grasped at Jocelyn's rash promise, and she determined to put the young man upon his guard. If, in order to satisfy the reader's curiosity, we are obliged to examine the state of Avaline's heart, in reference to Jocelyn, we must state candidly that no such ardent flame was kindled within it as burnt in the breast of the young man. That such a flame might arise was very possible, nay even probable, seeing that the sparks of love were there, and material for combustion was by no means wanting. All that was required was that those sparks should be gently fanned, not heedlessly extinguished." Little was said by the two young persons as they slowly paced the terrace. Both felt embarrassed, Jocelyn longing to give utterance to his feelings, but restrained by timidity, Aveline trembling lest more might be said than she ought to hear, or if obliged to hear, than she could rightly answer. Thus they walked on in silence, but it was a silence more eloquent than words, since each comprehended what the other felt. How much they would have said was proclaimed by the impossibility they found of saying anything. At length Jocelyn stopped, and, plucking a flower, observed, as he preferred it for her acceptance, My first offering to you was rejected. May this be more fortunate. Make me a promise, and I will accept it, she replied. Willingly, cried Jocelyn, venturing to take her hand and gazing at her tenderly. Most willingly. You are far too ready to promise, she rejoined with a sad, sweet smile. What I desire is this, Recall your hasty pledge to my father, and aid me in dissuading him from the enterprise in which he would engage you. As the words were uttered, the Puritan stepped from behind the alley, which had enabled him to approach them unperceived, and overhear their brief converse. "'Hold!' he exclaimed in a solemn tone, and regarding Jocelyn with great earnestness. "'That promise is sacred. It was made in a father's name, and must be fulfilled. As to my purpose, it is unchangeable.' The enthusiast's influence over Jocelyn would have proved irresistible but for the interposition of Avalon. "'Be not controlled by him,' she said in a low tone to the young man, adding to her father. "'For my sake, let the promise be cancelled. "'Let him ask it, and it shall be,' rejoined the Puritan, gazing steadily at the young man, as if he would penetrate his soul. "'Do you hesitate?' he cried in accents of deep disappointment, perceiving Jocelyn waver. "'You cannot misunderstand his wishes, father,' said Avalon. "'Let him speak for himself,' Hugh Calvary exclaimed angrily. Jocelyn Manchansi,' he continued, folding his arms upon his breast, "'and regarding the young man fixedly as before. "'Son of my old friend, son of him who died in my arms, "'son of him whom I committed to the earth, "'if thou hast aught of thy father's true spirit, "'thou wilt rigidly adhere to a pledge voluntarily given, "'and which, uttered as it was uttered by thee,' has all the sanctity, all the binding force of a vow before heaven, where it is registered and approved by him who has gone before us. Greatly moved by this appeal, Jocelyn might have complied with it, but Aveline again interposed. Not so, father, she cried. The spirits of the just made perfect, and of such is the friend you mention, would never approve of the design with which you would link this young man in consequence of a promise rashly made. Discharge him from it, I entreat you. Her energy shook even the puritan's firmness. "Be it as thou wilt, daughter," he said after the pause of a few moments, during which he waited for Jocelyn to speak. But as the young man said nothing, he rightly interpreted his silence. "Be it as thou wilt, since he too wills it so. I give him back his promise, but let me see him no more." "Sir, I beseech you," cried Jocelyn, but he was cut short by the puritan, who, turning from him contemptuously, said to his daughter, Let him depart immediately. Aveline signed to the young man to go, but finding him remain motionless, she took him by the hand and led him some way along the terrace. Then releasing her hold, she bade him farewell. Wherefore have you done this? inquired Jocelyn reproachfully. Question me not, but be satisfied I have acted for the best, she replied. Oh, Jocelyn, she continued anxiously, if an opportunity should occur to you of serving my father, do not neglect it. "'Be assured I will not,' the young man replied. "'Shall we not meet again?' he asked, in a tone of deepest anxiety. "'Perhaps,' she answered, "'but you must go. "'My father will become impatient. "'Again, farewell.'" On this they separated, the young man sorrowfully departing, while her footsteps retreated in the opposite direction. Meanwhile, the May games went forward on the green with increased spirit and merriment, and without the slightest hindrance. More than once the mummers had wheeled their mazy rounds, with Gillian and Dick Taverner footing it merrily in the midst of them. More than once the audacious Prentice, now become desperately enamoured of his pretty partner, had ventured to steal a kiss from her lips. More than once he had whispered words of love in her ear, though as yet he had obtained no tender response. Once, and only once, had he taken her hand, but then he had never quitted it afterwards. In vain other swains claimed her for a dance. Dick refused to surrender his prize. They breakfasted together in a little bower made of green bows, the most delightful and lover-like retreat imaginable. Dick's appetite, furious an hour ago, was now clean gone. He could eat nothing. He subsisted on love alone, but as she was prevailed upon to sip from a foaming tankard of and ale, he quaffed the remainder of the liquid with rapture. This done, they resumed their merry sports and began to dance again. The bells continued to ring blithely, the assemblage to shout, and the minstrels to play, a strange contrast to what was passing in the Puritan's garden. End of chapter 18